Alright, this is Congress Two Beers then. Uh we're 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 in a mood today. Uh, we, got, we just lost some uh, great tape. Yeah, we lost. I don't know. Ten minutes of tape about Capitol Police, which I'm sure is everybody's like highest priority. Um, but nonetheless, I'm Josh Uter. I'm with Matt Glassman hey. and Mark Harkins, hey, and we man. have special guest James Walner in uh, to talk about uh, the Senate and impeachment and what what else are we talking about today? We don't. I, I don't actually know. know. Capitol Police, maybe. <laughs> the president's budget drops on Monday, but we don't have to spend much time on that. No, <laughs> no we're so, not talking. Is that about still it. a thing? Yeah, yeah, kind of. I mean, it's a week later. Yeah, yeah, it's still a thing. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Well, good for him. Well, that's about, that's about <laughs> exciting as it gets right there. And we're done with that part. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was good. So, James, you are a, a prominent commentator on the impeachment trials that's going on. A lot of... Prominent. Wow. Okay. I would say prominent. Okay, thank you. Take procedural it. writing. Prominent in my world. I'm going to quote you and say that I was prominent. Yeah. <laughs> you have to admit prominent your own story. <laughs> uh, you were writing a lot during the trial. Um, have you had any time to reflect and, and build up a retrospective assessment now of it from any point of view? Did you think it was worthy of a Senate impeachment trial? Do you think it was a debacle? Do you think it was something else? I've thought about it. I haven't written anything on it, but it wasn't a trial, it seems to me. It wasn't a trial. It was the same thing as the, the Clinton trial, trial in quotation marks. James is making air quotes right now. Um, yep. It seemed to me that the whole thing was structured to not have a trial. Basically, senators got together and they said, we don't want to have a trial. How do we get through this as quick as possible on both sides? And they managed to do that. And they ended up creating a, a, a structure that allowed them to hear opening statements and vote to decide whether or not they wanted to have a trial. And they said, no, we don't want to have a trial. And then they moved on. And a bunch of really bad arguments were made on both sides about this process. And in the end, I think the Senate looks really bad. Yeah. Really bad for what happened. Mm -hmm. Are there any repercussions? I think it further locks in the state of play that we're in. I don't think what happened in the trial is necessarily unique to impeachments. I think the Senate considers legislation like this. I mean, everything the Senate does, I think, is reflective of how it handled the trial. Uh, it's a you know, centralized control and leadership. No unpredictable deliberation on the floor. No debate. Everything happens, it happens for a reason, and you know exactly how it's going to end. You don't tolerate a freewheeling process if you can't control it, which by, by definition you can't. Um, that sounds an awful lot like the House Representative. Well, here's the thing. So one of the things that I've been reading a lot more about in the last few days because of the trial and because of the impeachment process in the House is the difference between, like, you know, the arena-type legislature versus a transformative-type legislature, right? Transformative legislatures uh, under, like, Nelson Polsby was this idea that there were uh, multiple people who could offer new dimensions and new... Uh, 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 venues of conflict and new venues of collaboration and argumentation to in order to facilitate a process of decision making right now there's it was transformative in the sense that they were making policy somewhat on the fly right now there's you know kind of a veneer to that it's not totally true even in these transformative legislatures that you're talking about in the 1970s and 60s and 50s and all the stuff where you had lots of free wielding free wielding quote unquote debate but it seems to me now that we're entering a place where everything is engaged in and almost like a pre-procedural atmosphere then the process is drafted up to agree to whatever was to allow whatever they agree upon right that to occur. um so there's almost nothing transformative about it right another the process itself is like you say not necessarily uh, you know a process the outputs are the inputs right it's that it's a means to an end right um 
And to what degree is this good or bad, in your opinion? Well, I think the first thing is that it's just, it's even more simple. It just wasn't a trial. The trial, you have opening statements, and this is not an Article Three sentence, it's an impeachment trial setting in the Senate. Opening statements, where you outline the arguments you're going to make, then you have a process after those opening statements whereby you have evidence to support the arguments that you make, you kind of prove your case, then you have closing arguments, and then you have a vote. That's how every single Senate trial up until Bill Clinton went. And then Bill Clinton started to, that impeachment trial went the other way. They didn't do that. They had, they presented all their evidence and opening statements essentially, which under Senate rules and precedents, you're not even allowed to do. You're not even allowed to do that. You can make points of order, but they did that. Then they have a vote on whether or not they should, you know, dismiss. And then you have maybe some witness votes, but everybody agrees on it. You get through it as quickly as possible and then you move on. And in the Senate trial, what was on trial was the House process. That's right. all it was. And right. that's not the whole point of an impeachment trial. The impeachment trial is to say the House, they go through their thing to get their case. They come and then they prove their case to you. And then the respondent gets an opportunity to rebut that case and prove his or her case. And then the Senate makes a decision and uh, unwillingness to go through with that. I mean, I agree 100 percent on the um, transformative legislature stuff, but I think it's even more simple than that. I mean, they're just not doing their job. And this went a step beyond yeah, the Clinton trial because they didn't even have sort of the closed-door deliberation day. Not not legislative deliberation, but right. closed-door arguing over it by themselves that, that was featured in the Clinton trial. This was an even more compressed version of... Because no one wanted to have this trial. I don't think the Democrats really wanted to have this trial. You get this weird thing where the Senate has this big vote on whether or not to allow witnesses. And then they vote to not allow witness That's, votes. That, that vote in and of itself is insane. We'll right, agreed. They bit. vote to not allow witness votes. And then... They recess for a little over an hour. They come back and by unanimous consent set up four votes on witnesses. <laughs> what? I mean, this is ridiculous. That's I mean, What's the problem? And then they say, okay, now the trial's over. We're going to vote on next Wednesday. All by unanimous consent. They go home. Like that, like, I just don't, it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. It's Looney Tunes. Yeah. I don't, I don't think anybody should be happy. I don't think the president should be happy. I don't think people who don't like the president should be happy. I don't think anybody should be happy with this. Well, I mean, that's not true because lots of partisans love this, right? If you were a partisan or you wanted to um, lock down the trial and get to exactly what you wanted to do, like Mitch McConnell's in love with this process. And not only that, like many of his members are also in love with this process because it kind of takes all the dr drama out of it. Mitch McConnell likes the process because he's in control. I yeah. think Trump initially wanted a more robust process where he could call the Bidens and do a bunch of other stuff. And more power to him. He has every right to do that. So why, so why isn't there a more robust process, though? I mean, it's not just Mitch McConnell who's in control. He's not a dictator in the Senate, mm -hmm. right? So where's where's the acquiescence coming from? I think Schumer and McConnell both are helped to create an environment whereby the members are convinced. And look, they're, they're not victims. I mean, they're doing it to themselves that it has to be this way. It has to be this way, and and if it's not this way, it's going to be chaos, and the republic's going to fall into the ocean, and we're all going to blow up on the spot, and it's going to be the end of the world. So this is what was amazing to me, is that the Senate, two-thirds of the Senate, is not up for re-election. They're, they're hanging out in November. They're going to have a martini or something, right, when everybody else is, one-third of their colleagues are sweating it out. Um, yet you saw many of the people who had no electoral pressure act in the exact same way that you would expect somebody who's up for your election act in this impeachment trial. What, what do you think was going on there? I don't think election, the electoral 
lens is the best way to understand what's happening on this situation. Because at the end of the day, the presidency is seen as key for making policy. And so if you want to make policy, the last thing you want to do is impeach your president. Right? And even from an electoral angle, if you are telling your voters that you're going to make policy on X, Y, and Z, the last thing you want to do then is turn around and impeach your president. It will then make it harder for you to make policy on X, Y, or Z. I mean, this is a consequence of Congress basically handing over the keys. But that was true in 1868 as well. It's not like the Democrats were voting to impeach Johnson then, right? Like the party unity in the face of an impeachment isn't anything new. Right. I think what's new is that impeachment is no longer seen as a valid tool to effectuate yeah. policy outcomes. Yeah. And, that, and look, in, in 1868 it was, and it worked. I mean, yes, John, Johnson didn't get impeached, but he certainly behaved himself after that. Nixon, while he wasn't impeached, it, I mean, he left, right? It, but there was a sense of you use impeachment when the president doesn't do what you want the president to do, if you can, right? And now the idea is that it's somehow dangerous, that somehow bad things happen if you impeach the president. I mean, they would make the president's counsel said, if we do this, we're going to have nothing but impeachments. People are going to get impeached all the time. And my response was, well, what are these people doing that is leading members of Congress to impeach them? Like that, Maybe why, they should no be. one's asking that question. It's like, well, they just, it's all unjust. Like what's, seriously. Like these people are getting elected by their constituents and they turn around and just impeach people under this scenario constantly. And it undermines our republic. Well, why are they being impeached? I feel like you have a really good sense of the GOP caucus in the Senate. They had numerically the votes to call any witness they want on paper if they had the party unity to do so. They didn't have to call Bolton. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to call you know whoever. They could have just said, we're going to call Hunter Biden and Barack Obama, and we're going to call Eric Holder, and we're going to circus, right? Mm -hmm. What is the gravity in the party that prevented that from happening? Is, is that a thing where you perceive the leadership wanted no part of that? Or they just didn't have the votes, even if someone tried to do that? Because you didn't see sort of the conservatives, who the other group people, you know, they had the Democrats and the moderates, maybe, thinking about calling Bolton. But I can imagine some, a lot of conservatives wanted to start a witness mm -hmm. extravaganza as well, but they never spoke up either. So the, they, no one wanted a trial, and calling witnesses implies a trial. Right now, there's a lot of coverage about McConnell being this mastermind because of how mm -hmm. the Senate trial went down. If you go back and read what McConnell was trying to do at the beginning, he basically lost everything up until the, this last process emerged. He didn't want to have a trial at all. He wanted to dismiss the trial right away. He didn't have the votes for that. He wanted to do all these other sorts of things. He didn't want witnesses, and then they gave Schumer votes to have witnesses. I mean, basically, McConnell just took credit for the fact that things turned out the way they did. But at the end of the day, they didn't want a trial. And so they push back against... When you say they, who's they? Because I can count up a lot of people who wanted a trial. I think the bulk of the leadership on both sides of the aisle, uh, I think that's viewed as... Uh, you know, it's the same thing with DACA in the Obama administration. Conservatives wanted to impeach the president. We had, we had people and senators going around saying that the president was acting in an unconstitutional manner. And then you raise the issue, well, maybe we should impeach them. And it was like, oh, my God, no, that'd be awful. And so when you and say then the same with the IRS commissioner in the House, you yeah. can't impeach them. It's what, and it's like it's just seen as a bad tool for whatever reasons, for electoral reasons, for all sorts of different reasons. When you say Schumer didn't want a trial, mm -hmm. right, 
Well, you just the members of both leadership. You didn't mention. Right. Well, I, names, I'm saying when true. you say the Democrat, no, I'm speculating. I, I mean, when you say the Democratic either. leadership didn't want a trial, I'm trying to wrap my head around that. You're saying that because they accepted unanimous consent deals to structure the final outcome, because certainly Schumer and the other leaders of the Democrats voted to try and get witnesses. They brought amendments to try and have witnesses. So it seems like at some level they wanted a trial. Yeah, I think at some level they wanted to be seen as wanting a trial. Yes, that's what I mean. I mean, even in the Clinton resolution, the second resolution that called the witnesses, it was you know. It was a party line vote, but it was bipartisan support for that process. Democrats all just voted against it, but they saw it as key to getting the, the trial over with as quickly as possible. No, it was like a desire on both sides to not have this thing play out. Last thing Schumer wants is his party breaking on impeachment, having some of his members voting to acquit and other members not. I think the last thing McConnell wants is to have a Republican president not producing witnesses when a Republican-controlled Senate calls for those witnesses, right? I thought that was a huge underrated factor. I think it's huge. I think that, it's because what are you going to do? I mean, they're not going to come. And then at that point, it's like, well, what what do you do if you're in the Senate? Right. I mean, that's I, massive. I, I thought that that was, I didn't think there was a huge possibility of it, but I thought that was one feature of the entire impeachment episode that really could have gone in Congress's favor, which is if you've got a showdown between the Republican-led Senate and the White House over getting people onto the floor as witnesses, would have been a major conflict. I don't know how it come out, but man, what a moment for the United States Senate there to It got to itself. the point where when in trying to dissuade members from voting for witnesses, the leadership was basically going around making arguments like, this is going to go on forever, and it will end up with the Capitol Police with guns drawn at the White House, uh, you know, over witnesses. And, you know, I would have asked, like, well, why are you at the White House? Bolton doesn't live at the White House, <laughs> number one. Number two, why don't you pass a law that says they can't use their guns to shoot you? Like, I don't get, like, there's lots of different things you can do. That's just an absurd statement. It's just absurd to say that, oh, it's going to end with the Capitol Police versus the Secret Service. Like, you are in control of the Secret Service Congress. Like, you can get rid of the Secret Service for this purpose. You can do whatever you want, and you probably have the votes at that point to override a veto. The president doesn't have a right, I mean, to, you know, prevent you from getting witnesses. Go scoop them up outside his house. I don't know. Mm-hmm. What do you think about Romney? He's got great hair. Yeah. <laughs> he really does. When you look at someone take a vote like he did, uh, I see that as mostly position-taking rather than someone trying to achieve an outcome. Uh, you're closer to the inside here on the Senate GOP. Did you see evidence of Romney trying to convince other Republicans, or did you see this really as a just a public act facing his constituents, facing the national public, as opposed to a something that was part of a broader effort to shape the actual trial or non-trial? I mean, I think they're related, and certainly the members are talking amongst themselves, trying to you know, convince each other and that sort of thing. I love it when senators vote against their party or just one senator voting against 99 of his or her colleagues. I think it's outstanding. And you need more, it, it's not a very comfortable thing to do. And you need senators who are willing to do that. Because what it means is that they're unwilling to be persuaded behind closed doors by their party. And it forces, and if you get enough of those people to do that kind of thing, then all of a sudden it forces the debate out into the open and it forces a process to be had. So anytime you have that, I think it's great. I mean, whether it's McCain voting against the Affordable Care Act, you know, the reform that they wanted to do, or it's Romney in this case. I mean, conservatives often vote like one or two members against the entire Senate. But that's, it's an incredible, there's a lot of pressure to go along with the team. Were you surprised Romney voted the way he did? Were you surprised there were others who didn't? 
Or did the vote outcome basically match your expectation? I'm not, I don't understand why you have people like Murkowski and Collins voting to acquit. Because they clearly weren't happy about it. And what's the, like, they're not going to get any, like. Right, there's no bump. That there's no, get. there's not going to hurt them. It's only going to, I mean, it's only going to help them. It's only going to hurt them, right? At, at least my, I'm not an electoral expert. I don't know, but it seems like it only hurts them. No one expects them to vote that way. Um, and so. Well, it's, it's primary politics, right? That they're playing. You're not going to primary Susan Collins. And Lisa Murkowski oh. has demonstrated already that she can survive a primary on her own in 2010. But she hasn't done this. And number one, and, and I think when you have a governor like LePage, who's been mm-hmm. in Maine beforehand, I think she's. I think Collins is right to be concerned that somebody from the right can win. Well, I mean, beyond that, isn't there a concern that in, in, a, in such a partisan event like impeachment, that by voting to convict in an election year, or even not an election year, you risk alienating your most hardcore, ardent supporters on election day. Yeah, I, and I don't know enough about Murkowski or Collins' support in Maine and Alaska, but my sense is that it doesn't rely on really hardcore, rabid partisans at the end of the day. Um, so, that's fair. You know, I, but if, if Republican you, lost 20% of their vote, I mean, that's... If you successfully primary Collins, you're probably just going to give Maine to the Democrats. Right, and I think there's a lot of arguments so. against that, and I think that there's a lot of reasons why um, why you have you'll have establishment support backing her in that situation. Mm-hmm. It'll be very difficult to overcome um, primaries. I think after 2010, incumbents have gotten very good at responding to primaries, even separate and apart from their voting record, uh, and it's become they've, they've gotten very much more successful, I should say, in in fending them off. And so, you know, I I think we overstate the the threat that that posed for them. I mean, yeah, if you're like a Ben Sass or somebody, but I mean, I think Ben Sass is probably just trying to repair a whole host of things over the years that he's done to try to have some life uh, and be able to win. Um, but that goes beyond, it's the whole narrative. It's not just about one vote. It's the whole narrative of things, that, the totality of his record and his statements. But you seem, I, I, I'm completely in agreement with you that at least Murkowski and Collins and perhaps other people seemed annoyed, ticked off, upset by this behavior, or concerned about it enough that had they voted to remove, it wouldn't surprise me at all, right? Their attitudes seem to match a removal vote. And he's still acquitted in the end, so what's the point? It's a lot harder. If he actually gets removed and you're the deciding factor, then maybe you upset people who like the president. But if he's still acquitted in the end, it's really hard, it seems to me, to... You know, to make that argument. I mean, it's kind of like people forget about this stuff pretty quick. And from what I could tell, not many people were talking about or cared about impeachment outside of this town. I mean, I was back in South Carolina and nobody ever seemed to. It's like, whatever, what are we talking about? So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's all speculation, but. But then, I mean, given that, you have to take the, the other side of the coin. Why vote to remove the president if it doesn't matter? Like. Markowski can save herself some buffoon yelling at her on Twitter. But then she the next week. I think then you one from an electoral standpoint, you do antagonize your kind of support that presumably your independent and more democratic base of support. So I think that's certainly there. Second thing is just have self respect. If you don't think the president yeah, should no, I mean just vote I mean, should vote to remove him. If you don't think he's doing a good job or isn't listening to you. Do you think this vote conscience came into it more than a typical vote in the Senate on some piece of legislation? Or do you think for a lot of senators this was just, just another vote in the Senate and I vote with the party and none of this is even weighing on me? 
I mean, there was a lot of talk about conscience and what this, it was really odd. The Senate was worried about what this does to the presidency. Like, we seem very odd. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're worried about weakening the presidency. Like, it's just like, but, no, I mean, I don't know if conscience came into play or not. I mean, I'm not in their shoes. I think, you know, maybe it does. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's just another vote. One of the things that was most striking to me is that how not only was the Senate apparently concerned about what this does to the presidency, it's like the Senate was very, very unconcerned about the presidency not responding to the Congress in any way, shape, or form, right. like protecting executive privilege in the way that it did, for example, right? Like, well, I'm defending your right not to tell me things. Right, the, um, criticizing the House for calling witnesses and then they don't show up and then you're like, it's your fault. And it's like, right. I mean, it's just, it's, it is, it's laughable. And if you think back, I mean, think of like a Jesse Helms. Mm-hmm. What would Jesse Helms do in this scenario? Right. What would a what would a Howard Metzenbaum do? What would a Richard Russell do? I mean, you can go on down the line of people on both sides of the aisle, on both sides of the ideological spectrum, and my sense is they would be appalled, absolutely appalled by what happened and how uh, and how weak this Congress was during this impeachment trial. People who would be probably inclined to support Trump and like the president would be appalled by how this went down. I think, um, and how I think it, it just it looks really bad in my opinion. I think it's exactly right. I, mean, I remember when I was a staffer for North Carolina, Dem- I was a Democratic staffer in North Carolina House, and whenever I had friends who had problems, especially during the Bush years, I'd say, don't talk to my, me in my office. Go talk to Helms. Mm-hmm. He's got the ear, and he's willing to stop anything they do. He held up so many mm-hmm. nominations of his own presidents because of something that wouldn't get answered or mm-hmm. some issue that they had with the way that they were in. It could uh, be just like tobacco or something. It yeah. isn't even like some deeply principled thing. He's like, I'm a senator. I'm a United States senator, and you have to listen to me. Right. Well, this is, this is something that's indicative of like a, a broader trend in American politics is that Congress is just less concerned with what the executive branch is doing outside a performative aspect of it. So we'll bring in people for oversight. We'll have all of these hearings and show trials. But at the same time, we're not going to really put our foot down on appropriations in any real significant way. We're not going to reauthorize you or cut programs in any real significant way. In fact, we're probably going to neglect authorizing you for several years beyond the, <laughs> beyond the expiration of the authorization. Okay, uh, we're not to give you more and more money. Right, we're right. We're going to continue to give more and more money. We're not going to cut your uh, cut that program. We're not going to zero out anybody's office. It seems like Congress's interest in the executive branch is only in the performative aspects of it. Like I am against that, but when it comes to actually doing something about it, like passing a law or a provision or an appropriation that would hold them accountable in the way they say they want to, they don't. So is this merely some kind of like? partisan exercise that we're continuing to see with no real interest in the lawmaking or kind of uh, routine governance aspect of it? Yeah, I think they, ironically, they don't agree on much, the parties anymore, but they don't act precisely because they don't agree on much. And they've convinced themselves that they have to control the factory or Congress to be able to do anything. And you can't control the factory if you're somehow divided. So you end up punting all these issues to the presidency. to make decisions and then at that point you don't want to take any action against the presidency one because that action will reveal divisions within your party which will make it harder to win elections and then be in control and then two it will also undermine the place where you're punting all the issues and they don't want to do that either and so they're weird in this weird thing so at the moment when we see congress as a factory and we think about in terms of production it's like the least productive thing ever it's really odd very ironic but that's what it's just they're just sitting there doing nothing precisely because they now the way they think about congress there's no place for congress in it the way they think about politics i should say 
Well, I think it's interesting. There's a interesting piece by uh, Jim Curry and Francis Lee uh, recently that was in a book. I think that Noel McCarty and Francis Lee did. It was called uh, "Can Congress Govern Itself?" or "Can We Govern Ourselves?" I think it's the name of it. Anyway, um, in this particular piece, they get on something that's really important, which is where um, Congress is sort of intentionally creating conflict without actually resolving any of it. Right. So, in other words, we are going about uh, scheduling very controversial bills, passing them on very partisan lines, with the full intent and knowledge that they will never become law. Right. Um, and this is not new, it's not routine, but there were some interesting statistics that um, prior to, and in, in, from like 1970-something to like 1994, 90, I forget the actual right, date. That'd be the right place to cut. But 2% of all bills passed through Congress pit 90% of one party versus 90% of the next. Right? 2%? 2 Wow. Since 2011, that's 55% in the House and 30-some-odd percent in the Senate. I'd be curious um, to see the exact, the absolute numbers on those bills, though, because my guess is they've... Like, well, the numbers have come down, too. Probably like three bills have passed this. But you're probably right. talking 75 to 94, which right. makes sense. We're, we're not talking about yeah. bills that become law. We're just talking about bills in general. Just, just bills in general. I mean, they can't, they can't act. I mean, this is the... Yes, I agree, but we have this weird thing where we think that the parties... It's all very partisan right now, and, and everybody agrees, and they're very cohesive for whatever reason. When in reality, they're not acting precisely because they disagree amongst themselves. And if my guess is if you had the same level of output, just bills that they're passing, that even if they don't become law, you, that percentage would go way down because you would see a lot more of, uh, you know, a lot more blurring of differences. But and actually when right. the Senate usually acts on bills that do become law or on other bills it usually blurs the it, it blurs the yes. differences. They're right. not but this is the point is that the leaders are choosing these partisan bills far more frequently. Which is why they're not doing they're doing right. fewer and fewer things because yes. they're harder to even find those partisan bills, yes. which actually undermines the argument that somehow they're getting more and more partisan because if you're doing less because you're if the, because you're divided on more, then presumably you're not as polarized or partisan as well, this so. is the big distinction between the House and the Senate, right? This, the Senate is actually much more dysfunctional in this room. Oh, 100%. Right? Um, the House is actually passing a lot of stuff that will never become law, right? They're, they're, doing, they're doing a lot of stuff. Woo! Right? And they're cranking them through, and they're passing with 228 votes and 236 votes and 222 votes and 224 votes. Like, eight of the top ten priorities the Democrats wanted to push this Congress have already passed, and they're like... I mean, almost every single Democrat is on board with it, and almost every single Republican is opposed. Whereas in the Senate, like, they're just not, they're not putting anything on the floor. Like, not even, like, partisan messaging bills outside of, like, the Green New Deal. But I also don't think there's a problem with losing. I mean, you got to lose before you win, sometimes a lot. Yeah. And number two, messaging is just another way of winning over time. I mean, you have to, right. it's not, they're not right, mutually Right, but it's winning exclusive. in the way that you hate, which is just a Not necessarily, right? no. I mean, look, how do, you do, how do you pass the Civil Rights Act of 64 without a huge messaging campaign starting in the 20s over anti-lynching stuff and going all the way through the 50s and 60s, right? How do you do, you can't. You have to message. Messaging is what people do when you are outnumbered inside the well, chamber. Well, here's where I disagree with that, because messaging implies some sort of level of control through the legislative process to message, right? So, I mean, you can have outside messaging, you can have messaging through groups and the civil rights movement, but like messaging within a procedural context implies control, which they did not have during those years. Yeah, but you have. But like, they took action and right. they lost, and that was a form of messaging because it raises the awareness. It says we really need to, you know, get active on the outside as well, mm -hmm. and it shows a willingness to, you know, actually try to go about changing things. Versus if you sit around like a bump on a log waiting for everybody to agree with you and say, I'm not going to message. 
right? Because if you're the status quo, you don't like messaging because you don't want anybody to challenge you. If you want to change the status quo, there's only one way to do it, and that's pick a fight. And you got a message, and you got to get people who aren't engaged to get engaged, so that you can then outnumber the forces that control the status quo. That's the only way. It's how abolition happens. It's how the women get the right to vote. It's how the civil rights pass uh, reform passes. Every major change happens that way, and now we have in the academy this idea that somehow messaging is a bad thing, that it undermines productive lawmaking, when in reality, messaging is how the system changes over time. Like, it's the only way. But here's the thing. Messaging also masks divisions within parties. But not all the time. Mm. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it can't. When Jim DeMint's messaging, it is revealing a lot, and they don't like that. Sure. When, when, When the... When McConnell messages through the NRSC and they have ads out there that say, hold the line. Yeah. But, you know, it's like, for what? It just says, hold the line. We have to act. And it says all these, like, you know, faces of these candidates who are up. It literally doesn't say anything else. It's like, why are we holding the line? But they don't even, they can't tell you. I mean, the Democrats are going through this right now, huge messaging, right, in the presidential primaries. We've got, what, four senators still in it, Mm -hmm. two of which are very progressive. Um, and the Democrat Party is trying to figure out where they are. There's going to be winners and losers out of all this. I think what was interesting is during the civil rights stuff, right? They tried a lot of things. They kept getting blocked by filibusters mm-hmm. and by chairmen. They keep trying. And they had to, you kept trying, and then they finally had you to figure it out. You change the you change the environment. You envision a possibility where you win, a future where you win, and then you go about trying to make that a reality. And it takes loss, losing a lot of votes. I'm, uh, here, here's, oh, I'm reading that new Eaton Hirsch book, Politics is for Power. If you've looked at this, James. And uh, the basic thesis, I mean, I just got it today, and I've been flipping through it. The basic thesis is that college-educated people in the United States have become political hobbyists, which is they read a lot of Twitter, and they talk to their friends who agree with them about politics several hours a day, but none of them actually do politics. None of them do any organizing, none of them do any convincing. Maybe they'll donate 10 bucks to people, and maybe they'll vote, but they won't actually do politics. They never knock on a door. They won't try and convince people, and they won't organize for power. And, man... That is so true, but I also see it. It feels like that's what senators do now too. Mm-hmm. They're political hobbyists. Mm-hmm. You see it when they talk about the Senate as if it's a place they're observing, and they're all victims. They don't have agency to exactly. change things. They'll be like, "Well, the vote count is this, and I just don't think the Senate's going to do that." It's like you hear them talk about the Senate like it's a third person thing. But this is the way. If if Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks had thought about politics like we do today, they would have stopped after Brown v. Board of Education and Eisenhower sending in the garden. Why? You got the courts in the, in, the, in the presidency. What more do you need? That's absurd. They would look at you. They'd be like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever said. That's a, No, we can't stop. We have to win in Congress. We have to change people's minds. We have to do politics. And it's brutal. And it sucks. And it takes a long time. And it ends up you lose more than you win. Again, it's like worse than baseball. But that's the reality of the situation. And now, our, like on gun control. We have like maybe there's like a flash and there's like some protest somewhere and that's it. That's it. Right. There's nothing on healthcare. There's no immigration. I mean, the, the amount of activism in this country today compared to the activism of the 60s and of the 70s is 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 minuscule. And then we wonder why nothing ever happens and nothing ever changes because we're all victims and nobody's willing to take action. And look, I, I certainly have my view about what kind of things should happen. But at the end of the day, it's not about, like, you have to recognize if you want to do something, you have to try to do it, which means you have to take action. You can't sit around and be like, well, the way to do this is to not act. Right, but I mean... I mean that's just dumb, right? And here's I mean, the thing. I mean, yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, on the one hand, like, many of these people don't have the opportunity to do that. 
right? So in the Senate, it's a totally different atmosphere, and I can't even talk about that. But in the House, like, they literally don't have the opportunity to message that way, right? They don't have the opportunity to act. Those are being, they're being completely shut out. But you come up with new ways, and you come up with new messaging things. Like, I mean, look what Gingrich did in the 80s and 90s. You basically, that's what messaging is key. You're not, I mean, one, you have to be willing to take action that loses, Right, but Gingrich in the 80s and 90s had infinitely more opportunities than they do now. Right, wait, but the, right, the, they 30 years ago, I mean, ways. you actually have amendments, and you can go into the floor and actually say something. We had more, you had more yeah, overall process. You can only, you can only in the strict procedural yeah, sense, though. Like, like think about Schneider, just though. pull more people into the conflict, yeah. right? Like, members of Congress in the minority of the House, you're right, they can't get amendments in, they can't take action on the floor. Make it a spectacle. But how the hell if they can't drag interest groups into the fight? Yeah. And I don't see people trying to do that anymore. Well, they can, the majority can also ignore interest groups more frequently. Good. More Make easily. them ignore them because then what that does is it raises the profile. It makes those interest groups more upset. It taps other interest groups saying, why are you ignoring them? And it all of a sudden you get destabilizing conflict that then ultimately leads to new status quo. But where is that happening? Nowhere, which is why we're gridlocked. <laughs> because, 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 because that's not happening. <laughs> But precisely, precisely, we're not gridlocked because we have a bunch of polarized partisans who want to disagree on everything. We're gridlocked because nobody can show up to the fight. Nobody cares. We're gridlocked because it's there all sitting are. around where it's like we're just passive and we're like, we're all, nobody has agency. It's like, well, woe is me. It's like Eeyore. We're a bunch of Eeyores in this country. And it's not just in Congress. It's everywhere. Everywhere. No, I disagree. In the fifties, sixties, and seventies, conservatives were acting, liberals were acting, everybody was no one was happy. And guess what? There's also a lot of bad crap going on there. Yeah, I agree right? with that. But my point is things change. When people take action, things change. I don't know how they change. It's unpredictable, but things change. When no one takes action, nothing changes. Period. And like we'll see, we, we started to see a little bit of action this last election, right? At least from the Democrats' point of view. They they took back over the House and you saw some attempts to try to bring some for, some issues forward, and we'll see in this next election, is the energy still there? We've watched young people vote in unprecedented numbers in 2018, so there is hope. But where is it in between the elections, right? Yeah, we, it's all in elections, thing. and then that's then used to stop people from acting in between elections, because they say, okay, well, if we do this now, the other side's gonna win, and they're gonna do like the, all this bad stuff, and it's like, no, they're not. They're not gonna do anything, just like you. It doesn't make any difference. It seems to me, I, I agree with this completely. It seems to me the goal now has been reduced to create the unified trifecta government for us, that mythical government, or Which prevent the other side from having the unified trifecta, and then just wait it out till the next election. And we've had two of those in both parties, or one party each, each over the last, what, in the last, like, ten, 10 years? years? And what, seriously, like what, what? what? What happened? I mean, well, there a bunch were, of stuff. Yeah, there was like healthcare. Obamacare so happened, and, <laughs> happened, and <laughs> some tax cuts happened, and everything else was window dressing. And sure, but and oh, I think that if you look at it, and you look back, and you know, our, you know, Livy in two thousand years, you know, where somebody finds our version of Livy in two thousand years, and they're reading about like the the healthcare debates. My guess is they're probably not going to be like, wow, that is a you know an existential fight between the Democrats and Republicans. There's going to be like one of them wanted a direct subsidy, and one of them wanted a tax credit to expand a middle class entitlement for healthcare. I mean, I'm not undermining the differences. I mean, I'm not suggesting and belittling them. There are big differences, sure. But in the grand scheme of things, they're not that different, right? I mean, and that's, I think, what, but we are now paralyzed by this idea that this is some zero-sum conflict when in reality it's not. It's not a zero-sum conflict. And I just don't, I don't understand, like, the lack of agency is just astonishing to me. And it just shows me that we no longer think about politics the way that they used to think about it. Do you see Trump as outside of this? Um, because the one thing about Trump is he certainly envisions a wider politics. He did, but it's remarkable how quickly he got yes. caught up in the whole 
the whole party mentality in the way, and now he doesn't even act. You know, I think, you know, what's like, you know, he's letting a, a, a district court judge issue a nationwide injunction to stop him from, give me a break. Like Trump coming down the escalator wouldn't do that. But Trump is the president all of a sudden has a bunch of people around him and he's like, well, I'm really powerful now. And now I, you know how I went by not acting. Look at AOC, incredible raw political talent. She beats uh, a very powerful Democratic incumbent in a primary. She wins. She comes here. She's got like, you know, she has all this stuff she wants to do. And she says, I want to do this. And she goes around and she sees people who don't want to do it. And like not one of them being the speaker, Nancy Pelosi. And she says to herself, like any person with any kind of common sense, like my grandfather, who is an electrician and never went to college, who understood how this stuff works, it would say, well, I need to figure out a way to put pressure on her so that I can act and win. And so she's like goes and protest outside her office, which I thought was just hilarious. <laughs> Like nobody told her she can't protest outside the speaker's office. It just made sense, which of course it makes sense. And, it, and guess what? It ended up putting pressure. And all of a sudden, the, she conquers the House. They end up passing the Green New Deal. They didn't want to take that up and deal with it. They didn't pass that. Well, they ended up passing some, you know, they acted on it in some form, right? They, they, some kind of climate bill. Well, yeah, but sure. But my point is that she they forced... They put it up on the agenda. They, they put the yeah, and they put it on the agenda. They debated it. That She forced the party to, to agree with it in some way, shape, or form or aspects of it. And then it comes to the Senate. They put up something that's even less that, and it doesn't pass, right? But she forces the Senate to act. She forces the President of the United States to engage with her. She's a freshman, no-name, backbench Nobody in the House of Representatives who somehow I mean, single-handedly with like seven million Twitter followers. Yeah, right. that's, 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 that's the point. But the point is, she saw she had something she wanted to do. She had enough. She was naive enough to say that if I want to do something, I have to take action to try to do it. And then she went about trying to do it with her leverage, which was the Twitter followers and everybody else. And guess what? She single-handedly set the agenda in this town. And then they got to her, and they were like, "Well, we want to do this too, but if you do that, if you act, then you're not going to do it. You're going to lose." And so if you really want to do it, then don't do anything. And then she says, well, I made a mistake. I should have done it differently. Which, what? No, you did it right. And then you lost. And then you keep doing that. And eventually you win 20% of the bill. And I don't like what she's trying to do, fair, in full disclosure. But you know what? Like, that's, that's on me. And then I have to try to stop her by also taking action. That's the whole point of the process. Right. But how much of this is building a coalition that's absolutely necessary to take you build a coalition through credit. action. Well, you build a coalition also by like building allies, and you don't build allies by like continuing to upset them or well, putting them in weird spots. But uh, James, if, if I can speak for you for a second, I think you force allies. Yeah, you, you got to poke right. and prod the world until they agree with you in Riker's terms. Sometimes you have to put people in a position where they feel like they have to support you. You, like you said, I mean, you have to force them yeah, to agree with I don't, you. I don't necessarily disagree, but I think there's also something to be said for. You know, I, and I, this goes back to like the committee process back in the 60s and 70s. Like deference was there for a reason, right? You didn't, if you wanted to do something, you didn't go and upset the apple cart the first time you got there because that meant you would lose the allies who had the power to get the thing that you wanted to get done. And so what did that finally force in 74? In 74? Force a total change in the way that the, well, how it was run so that the power went to the leadership over the committee chairs because the committee chairs mm -hmm. got overrun because they had stopped things for too long. Right? I'm not saying you should yeah. always act. Look, I mean, of course, sometimes there's better ways of acting. There's you got to play politics. It's not, it's not the point. The point is that action itself is a legitimate thing in politics, that you should do it. And sometimes you have to act to create an environment where you can win when you can't win in the here and now. And right now, we have seen that action is always bad. And nobody, they're all victims. And they, all, they talk about themselves it's in the third person. It's definitely the Senate, right? Yeah. Oh, the Senate is a bunch of victims. It's awful.
Right. Well, I mean, as you said at the beginning of this, the only thing they're getting through right now is judges. I mean, they're not even willing to try to take votes to go down on. The votes they're taking right now are saying, vote for us because we're going to vote for these people who will then act. Yeah, that's what they're doing. That's what the judges are. That's literally all they're doing. It's like, it's nonsense. And those are being passed by like 75, 80 plus votes every time, exception of like a handful, maybe. And now we have this impression that it's this like hardcore partisan fight over the future of the judiciary. Give me a break. Democrats are voting for these judges too. Like, I don't get it. But yet we have this mentality and political scientists are, I think, guilty of this because it makes it a lot easier when you see Congress as a factory and you think about it as you're exercising a craft, it becomes easier to explain. It becomes easier to to analyze. So what happens when the Senate changes and does away with the filibuster on legislative items so that it's even easier to force these things without necessarily coming to agreement? See, I I think the last thing that they want to do is get rid of the filibuster for the legislature, for legislation, because ironically, the filibuster is what allows the leaders to control the place. And it becomes much more Wild West if you don't have the filibuster, because at that point, nothing's really debatable. Right. Nothing's really, you can make vote motions, you can do things and force votes. Right. You can appeal the ruling of the chair. There's no consequence at that point. Why not? You get an amendment tree. If you don't like it, offer an amendment anyway. Appeal the ruling of the chair. Nobody can say, well, if you do this, they're going to get rid of the filibuster. Right? It becomes harder to convince the people who want to act not to act without the legislative filibuster. And the filibuster, and I look, I'm a big proponent of the filibuster. I support the rules, right? But the filibuster doesn't help the outliers. It doesn't help the crazies. It doesn't help the knuckle draggers on both sides. It only helps the party leaders because you can't get 41 votes unless you're a party leader and you have the conference and you can get them all. You know, Jim DeMint's not convincing 41 people to block legislation. He may be forcing the leaders to do it, but it's ultimately the leaders. It's an organized tool. It's not an individual senator tool. One of the things that's interesting about this is that it seems what you're arguing is that senators don't want to pass anything. I think they do. I just don't. I think that the they think what they're doing now is how you win. It doesn't make sense to me. But I honestly, I mean, they're good people. I think they want to win. I think they want to do things. And this is the way that they think you win. And you lead and you pass stuff. It doesn't make sense on the outside. But on the inside, I think it makes a lot of sense to them. To not pass things. Well, they think by not acting, they can ultimately win and they'll pass things because maybe they can convince more people. Of, and we're almost there, right? And if we just don't do it now, we'll get there in the future and we'll convince more people or whatever the reason may be. I don't know. But I think they, I honestly, they're not, I don't think they're cynical. I think they, this, they think this is how you win. That you don't pass things. Correct. Correct. Okay. So, I mean, when you look back at the last two uh, unified government uh, periods, right, you've got... Uh, the 111th Congress, you've got the 115th Congress, right? Both Congresses passed some major legislation, right? Um, uh, the 111th did like healthcare and Dot Frank and um, Paycheck Fairness and a, and a bunch of other stuff. Um, stimulus package, yada yada yada. Um, 115th did uh, at a bare minimum tax cuts, criminal justice reform, uh, two-year budget deal, a couple other things. Farm right? bill. Farm bill. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so and then. Uh, they promptly lost their majorities. So are senators merely learning history at this point in time, do you think, given the partisan dynamics outside of Congress? Well, first of all, what's the point? I mean, I think we overstate the power of majority control in the Senate. 
Right. Honestly, I don't think, I mean, if you have a Senate where it operates like the Senate ought to operate, party control matters very little. Either because it's very collegial in, this, in the committees or because it's Wild West on the floor. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. And I don't think it matters if Schumer wins. It's going to look the exact same if Trump, if, if he's in the White House and Schumer's the majority leader, it's going to look the exact same, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, no, I think that the... the Legislatively. Yes. Yeah, so I assume it's going to look very different in the executive session. Uh, no, I think they'll continue to con- confirm all these judges. Maybe Kavanaugh's won't get through, sure, but like they're not—they're not going to not confirm judges. That's not a serious thing. Uh, I disagree with that. I, if Trump's president, I, Kav- even on going, well, this isn't going to happen. But gonna, if it is going to happen, no, I disagree with that. Right? It's, a, it's an odd branch of the tree where the Democrats get the Senate, but Trump remains president. Nevertheless, right. imagine it happens. You think they're going to continue to confirm judges because? Blocking judges is not sort of tenable in the public sphere, or you think they're going to continue to firm judges because Trump will be forced to moderate his judges and win their approval? Maybe a little bit of both, yeah. but at the end of the day, I don't think that senators think that blocking judges is legitimate. Look, Garland barely, barely went through. And the only reason Garland was the Senate was able to block him, like the leadership didn't want to block him. McConnell takes credit for it now, sure. They were geared up to confirm Garland in the lame duck the second Clinton won, which they all thought she was going to do. Harry Reid didn't lift a finger to try to force action on Garland. He could have. He could have forced votes, and he would have won those votes. Half the conference wanted to have action on Garland because it's not tenable to not confirm judges because they're all judicial supremacists. And you have to confirm judges, and you have to rubber stamp whatever the president sends over. And maybe you vote down Kavanaugh, but then the president's going to send somebody else, and then eventually you're going to get to an agreement. But the idea that somehow you're just going to leave court vacancies open for a two-year period, I don't think is going to happen, especially when the judges they're confirming now are going uh, 80, 75, 80-plus 80 votes. I mean, there's a lot more bipartisanship here. So even on that, I, it may look a little different around the edges or with a high-profile nominee, mm-hmm. but in the grand scheme of things, it's going to operate the, the exact same way. 111th Congress is the last Congress that actually operated, I think, like the Senate ought to, or at least has operated in the past. Um, it was you could it was beginning to, the change was beginning. You could see Reed starting to, to clamp down a lot more. Um, but that was that was the last time. And I think the hundred and you know when they passed tax reform, that barely passed. It was one vote. It was reconciliation, mm-hmm. and it was a very you know Republicans were like, there's nothing we agree on like tax reform, and then they could barely pass it. And it comes down to Toomey and Corker really working it behind the scenes. To, to pass that stuff, you know. So I don't think they're passing these bills, but it's not. I don't. I mean, it's not. It's almost in spite of themselves that they're that they're able to pass these bills. And then the last thing is, what good is the majority? Like, so what if you lose the majority? Like, what? What's the point? I mean, like, there's it, there's like a lot. Well, you control the message. majority, right? No, but, I mean, seriously, I'm being provocative for a reason, though. But yeah. like. Like what happens? Majority, right, was block. I do think they block a lot of judges. judges. But they control the message, <laughs> and I think the he- and, and the hearings are different, and the way that the administration's looked at it's different. Right? If you control the gavel, you control the message. Yeah, but in the Senate, that matters less because committees are less powerful. Number one, number two, that implies Senate committees are doing things which they're really not. Um, and I don't. And I also think that you know, yeah, Kavanaugh doesn't get on, and so I, I concede uh, that. But you're talking about legislation because clearly the Senate trial goes differently if the Democrats control the. Senate. Things that are sort of external to the legislative, so I'm gonna legislative go out process. I'm going to go out and say that it goes differently on the maybe a little differently, but it still looks a lot like the Clinton trial. I don't think that there was a I don't think there was an interest in having anything remotely like the Johnson trial in 68. If you go back and read it, that was just craziness, right? And there's nothing like that. I don't think there's anything like any of the other trials they had. I think if you look at the way like so was it Kent 
the judge that they did in 2009, um, that it's going to be like that. I mean, it's like come in, come out. They just want talking points. So I don't, I don't, even, I don't think the trial goes all that different. It may look a little, maybe you get some witnesses here and there, but at the end of the day, it's going to be highly structured. It's going to be, you know, for a perp, it, people are going to say this. We want to get through this as quickly as possible. And I think the underlying dynamics are the same. All right, and we've reached the 47-minute mark. James Walner, force of nature. Another <laughs> oh, 45-minute awesome. stem liner. It's great. Thank oh, you for thank coming you. on our show. Uh, this has been Congress Two Beers In, and uh, we will see you next time.